0: Good morning. Welcome to Money Management. I'm Mike Mail with the Spokane Office of the Opus 111 Group. We're here as we are every Saturday at 9 Pacific to talk with you about the markets and the economy and to provide you some insights into what's going on out there with all these crazy people back in New York. And speaking of crazy people back in New York... Uh, CNBC, which is renowned for its, uh, how would I say, headlines that are guaranteed to rile you up but with very little substance to back them up. But in any case, uh, they had one this week that said, and I'm quoting, too early to say if this is a durable market comeback, unquote. I'm not exactly sure when the market left. But this week did have a couple, uh, shall we say, uh, interesting uh, historical points uh we celebrated so to speak on the 9th of march that was the start of the big bull market march 9 2009 that's when it all began and turned and then uh last year uh, well a week excuse me a year ago yesterday the s&p dropped nine and a half percent in one day That was when the virus was first started out there and people were scared and all over the world, businesses shutting down, seemed like every bit of news was bad. Um, And that wasn't even the worst day because the following Monday on the 16th, the S&P dropped another 12%. So in 22 trading days, we lost 33% of our value. Now that was just a little fast. Uh, and was self-induced as opposed to uh, caused by the economy itself. So, as they say, what a difference a year makes. You know, I won't say things are all good, but I will say things are hugely improved. Thursday, uh, the S&P closed at an all-time high, and so did the Dow and the Russell 2000, the small cap index. And yesterday, both the uh, Dow and uh, Russell 2000 again hit new all-time highs, uh, and through, well, uh, since last March uh, on its low, the S&P's up 76%. So that's pretty good. You you have to go back to just after the 2016 election to find a time when we had more issues on the stock exchange, on New York Stock Exchange, that we're making 52-week highs. You know, growth momentum stocks are exploding higher. Investors grow a bit more comfortable around rates. And the ten year treasury uh, jumped back to it near its highest level for the year, and matter of fact, I think it is the highest level for the year. It was one point six where is it two percent uh up about eight basis points that's eight one thousandth of a percent and in uh, government bond world, those are pretty big moves uh And then this quick rise in bonds uh, put pressure on the NASDAQ stocks earlier in the month as uh, investors shifted toward those economically sensitive, what they call cyclical shares. We've seen sharp increases in interest rates can put outside pressure on the high-growth tech stocks because what happens is they reduce the relative value of those companies' future profits. Ned Davis Research, uh, pretty good company. They uh, say they estimate the NASDAQ 100, which is the index that we talk about all the time when the NASDAQ is up, down, or whatever. And it, what it is, it can, uh, it's the 100 largest non-financial companies in the NASDAQ composite. So the uh, Ned Davis says that uh, the NASDAQ would drop another 20% if the 10-year yield hits 2%. So it's, like I said, it's 1.63 or whatever. Uh, one uh, That's not a long way away, but it's there, and that's their concern. Now, you've seen the difference, I think, this week between the Dow and the NASDAQ. You see, the Dow, it's only 30 stocks as opposed to 100. But uh, what happens is that a lot of the companies in the Dow are, uh, how would I say, uh, oriented toward a resurging economy. They call them the re, the re- I used to be able to talk. <laughs> the, re- <laughs> the reopening stocks, uh, the companies that do well cyclically, and those are primarily in the Dow versus the NASDAQ, and so that's why we've seen a little discrepancy in the why didn't the NASDAQ set a new all-time high perhaps, uh, why the Dow did a couple times. So uh, And then yesterday, bond yields ticked back up again to the highest point in a year, so that took the air out of the tech stocks again. And a little bit of news, uh, GE says it's going to do a one-for-eight reverse stock split. Now, what's that mean? That means that if you have one share, uh, well, if you have eight shares currently of GE, you'll get one share of the new and improved GE, which I think will probably still be the same name. But in any case, what will happen is if by magic, your shares will increase by eight times. So if it were, um, I don't know, $20 a share uh, in the current uh, reality, it would be $160 a share, but with uh, one-eighth as many shares. So uh, just be prepared for that. I'm not exactly sure when that's going to take place, but it will be happening. And then Boeing, uh, they uh, are close to finalizing a multibillion-dollar order from for the 737 MAX from Southwest, they did announce a 27, I think it was, airplane order uh, on Friday. So that may have been it. But anyhow, things are looking up for the Boeing folks. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the market rotation, what's been going on here in the marketplace of late. Uh, we've got the past 40, 50 years. What they call the 60-40 portfolio has certainly been working. Now, the 60-40, as I'm sure many of you know, means that you're putting 60 percent of your assets into basically stock-type investments, and 40 percent into the uh, into bond-type investments to give you a, a balance. Well, the here here's kind of a catch that you got to be aware of now, and just part of what's going on as this rotation is going forward. 30-year treasuries over the last 40, 50 years created a, a total return of about 10% a year. That was pretty good. Now, the 10-year treasury over that period of time uh, hit 16% in uh, like 1982 and was down to less than 1% last year. Now, what happens is, is that with bonds... Is what's called an inverse relationship to prices. So those bonds that were out, those 16% bonds in the 80s, as interest rates continued to drop down, well, Anyhow, as interest rates continue to drop down, those would appreciate in price because the 16s became 10s, became 12, or became 8. And so those higher-yielding bonds maintained and increased their value. The interest didn't change any, but the, the price of the bonds changed. And so as rates drop, existing bonds tend to go up in price. However, the flip side is true too because as rates go up, those existing bonds will tend to drop. Now, uh, according to Wall Street Journal, value stocks are beating growth stocks by the widest margin in in two decades. That's the latest sign, they say, that investors expect the next year to bring powerful economic rebound. It's the largest lead for value stocks at this time of year since 2001. And again, this is uh, per Dow Jones. It didn't just come to me in a vision. Portfolio managers are snapping up those cyclical shares, and again, banks, energy companies, and others whose fortunes are tied closely to economic growth, uh, real estate investment trusts, timber companies, most of those kinds of folks. And and, uh, those shares often fit the description of value stocks, which trade at low multiples of their book value. So you've got banking heavyweights like J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, and then ExxonMobil and Chevron. Both of those were added, were upgraded by analysts today. And with, with rising bond yields and oil prices uh, pointing to expectations for higher growth, you know, you got J.P. Morgan and Bank of America up 20% for the year so far. Chevron's up 32%, Exxon 49%. And yes, all four were down last year. That's what we call a rotation. Now, part of the appeal of the value shares is their lower price tags, especially after last year's big tech rally. At the end of February this year, the Russell 1000 value index was at 21 times their trailing 12 earnings. This is according to Russell itself. For the Russell 1000 growth index, that figure was 37 times. So there's pent-up demand driving uh, accelerating earnings growth, especially among the value stocks that were hurt so badly over these last multiple years. And at the same time, we have more fiscal stimulus coming into the system, putting it mildly, so that will further turbocharge their growth. You know, the media, they, they run in, in I don't know, cycles, I think. They pick up on a topic and just beat it to death for a couple weeks, uh, depending upon what it is. Then they find a new topic. You know, it's like that squirrel thing. They go they go running off into another direction. But in any case, right now, inflation is seems what uh, all the uh, media types are able to spell. So they're able to focus on that, and that's what they're talking about. You know, being aware of inflation is one thing. Overreacting to what it might be, might be, is totally another. Definitely makes the case for diversification and asset allocation. And also remember these consumer price index, producer price index reports, that's inflation at our level as well as inflation at the manufacturer level. These are lagging numbers. They're not predictive. It's what's already in the system. Now the market itself, the stock market, is a wonderful hedge against inflation for a few reasons. Most importantly, you've got to realize and remember, and if you think about it, you go, like, well, yeah, inflation never shows on any of your statements. I don't care where they come from. They're not it's not there. Yet it's always something you need to worry about it as an investor, because the whole point of investing your money, certainly for the long term, is to keep up with or even better, outpace the rising standard of living because <laughs> that's what inflation is. Everything costs more every year. Uh, it's just a question of by how much more. Now, the 1970s, and I want to tell you, it was not a lot of fun to be, uh, uh, well, in the markets and, well, most anywhere else at that time because it was an inflationary nightmare. Uh, from 1968 to 1981. The Consumer Price Index, which is, again, inflation at our level, averaged 7.6% annually. It's 1.7 now, and people are jumping up and down like, oh, my goodness, you know, the sky is falling, kill me now. And and again, may I reiterate, it averaged 7.6. So if it averaged 7.6, you can reasonably conclude, and I can assure you, that that uh, number was significantly higher in individual years. If you go back to 1928, in spite of the depression and just a few more, shall we say, majorly negative events, the U.S. stock market is up 9.8% a year. Inflation, over that same period of time, has averaged 3% a year. So you do the math, carry the 2 okay. So stocks have grown nearly 7% more than the rate of inflation. That's a good thing. Stocks have also perhaps the greatest income stream of any asset. And the reason for that is that earnings and dividends also grow at a rate above inflation. Over the past 93 years, and I think we can agree that's long-term, earnings have grown at an average of roughly 5% a year. Dividends over the same period have grown also at about 5% a year, whereas bonds of any type of inequality never increase your cash flow so earnings and dividends both have a history of growing above the rate of inflation and and they can they make up part of your total return because remember the key to your investing is uh, this total return which is the appreciation plus any dividends or interest that you can earn in that investment over a period of time so it's true that the overall market has historically shown lower-than-average returns when we have elevated inflation, but there are certain areas of the market that do better in those times. Now, value stocks and commodities have tended to perform better than growth stocks when inflation rears its ugly head. Now, tips: these are uh, treasury inflation-protected securities are really about the only bond-type asset available that uh, where the principal goes up with the rate of inflation. The catch is, though, the TIPS would only provide a huge boost to your portfolio with any unexpected inflation. Expected inflation is already backed into the current yields. And then there's gold. Well, But gold, as I've maintained, is may not be the inflation hedge you think it is. Gold is flat over the last year. It's 18% off its high. It's possible that the massive repricing of gold that occurred in the 70s when Mr. Nixon ended the transferability of dollars into gold, and gold at that time was held, frozen, at $32 an ounce in the U.S., it made people believe gold was an inflation hedge because in the next couple of years, gold went from 32 to 800 Gee, that sounds like a lot. But uh, it's still gold is still not on an inflation based, an inflation adjusted basis, close to its all time high set way back then. Gold prices have declined over the past year, and even at the same time, inflation expectations have gone up. So, to say the least, gold's an imperfect inflation hedge. Uh, It's likely being challenged by stronger growth growth expectations and certainly higher interest rates. So, should we sound the inflation alarm now that we've got another series of huge stimuli in the system? Well, not yet. You know, a a key measure of the consumer prices rose less than expected in February. For the 12 months through February, the CPI was up 1.7%. Now, on one hand, that's the largest rise since February 2020, so it's starting to grow, but if you remember, February 2020 was the last month before it all went upside down, as I was saying in my opening comments. Jeffrey Curry, uh, Jeff is head of commodities research at Goldman. He says there's a beginning of a structural bull market in raw materials with a, vi- a variety of policies are driving demand. N- the supply, he says, can't keep up currently, so the dollar continues to weaken. Crude oil, copper, natural gas, all up in 2021. Crude oil was negative last year. It's now over $65 a barrel. It's up 75 percent since the start of November as major economies are reopening after the shutdown. Lumber prices, and this adds to the prices of homes for sure, up 140 percent over the last year. Copper futures contracts got down to around $2 last year. Now they're above four. Uh, Corn, soybeans, wheat all up. Uh, you know, commodities have done so poorly for so long, people have forgotten that it's an asset class. So when is, isn't that a good time to, how might I say, affect a change in trend? Uh, the commodity prices sure do seem to be pointing at higher consumer prices, but higher price inflation comes with a booming economy. That's not bad. And Goldman uh, again uh, says that commodities are ending a very strong bull market because of the infrastructure needs all across the world. They expect the commodity sector to return 15.5% over this year. So Now, other forces drive prices besides just inflation. With the economy shutting down and now on the verge of reopening, this could simply be a supply-demand mismatch that will work itself out. Alec Young is chief investment officer at a company called Tactical Alpha, and he said, Whatever price increases we're seeing now for commodities is because of pent up demand and because the supply chain is stressed out. Both of those are accurate. Price increases are due to the reopening, in his opinion, not to long term inflation, and the bond market has overreacted. Well, I guess stay tuned for the exciting conclusion. You know, Asset allocation is key in these kinds of situations because it can help protect your overall portfolio whenever markets are being unpredictable, which is hmm, pretty much five days a week. So how you might reallocate your holdings in a rising inflationary market? First, maintain your holdings in your high-quality stocks, whether individual or in various funds. Emphasis on high quality. When you're considering your fixed income portion, Look at what your when your holdings mature or what the average maturity is, which you can find by looking at your prospectus for uh, um, your bond mutual funds. And because the time until maturity till the bonds come due can have a big effect on your bond holdings. First of all, shorter maturer, shorter maturity is beneficial in a rising rate environment and that's because you can roll over cash equivalents like T-bills or short-term bonds or CDs into new bonds with higher yields another benefit of these short-term deals is you don't have nearly as much risk in terms of time when interest rates rise as we talked about before bond prices fall but bond prices fall much harder in the long bonds the long-term bonds than in the short-term bonds it's like being at the end of the crack, the whip line. So when you're looking at a rising inflationary environment, how do, what do you do? Uh, well, key is, as we talked about how well stocks do in an inflationary environment, maintain your holdings in your high-quality issues. And again, look at, when it comes to the fixed income portions, look at when they come due or what their average maturity is. Because... The shorter maturity is beneficial in a rising environment because it reacts more quickly, and you can can react more quickly. And you don't have as much what they call duration risk. In other words, the average time for the portfolio of bonds and the fund to come due or of the bonds that you own individually. In any case, when interest rates rise, bond prices fall, But they fall much more in the long bonds than in the short-duration bonds. For example, here's a real-world thing. There's a one- to three-year Treasury ETF. In other words, that's what they invest in. And the symbol for that is SHY, Sierra Hotel Yankee. And there's also one which is in the 20-year-plus Treasury ETF. And that one's the TILT, T-L-T. So the yield on the one to three-year bond, and again, this is taxable, it's 0.85%. Uh, and then uh, the 20-year, the yield is 1.8%. And by the way, it hit its 52-week uh, low uh, yesterday in terms of price. So, and the short ETF has a duration of 1.9 years. In other words, all the bonds will come due in about two years. Well, the other one has a duration of 19.1 years. So what this translates to is that a 1% increase, this is the duration risk, the 1% increase in interest rates would, not could, would cause losses of just 1.9% in the short-term one, but in the long term, one we're talking 19.1 percent. A one percent move is a 19 percent drop, almost a fifth of your value, just from that. So once again, a reason for maybe shortening up those durations. But you know, the, the challenge for some folks is, well, I got to have the high yield, okay? But everything's a trade-off, and that's what you're setting yourself up for. As rates go up, you're going to have a bigger opportunity. Maybe that's not the right word, but anyway, to participate in uh, seeing your prices go lower. Now, again, short-term fixed income, terrible against inflation over the long-term. That's why long-term assets like stocks and short-term assets like cash can make for decent inflation hedge portfolio. Because the stocks protect you against long-term inflation, cash can allow you, and again, short-term money markets, whatever, can allow you to use short-term, <clears throat> excuse me, inflationary spikes to put your money to work at higher rates. So, while higher oil and gas prices will certainly contribute to rising inflation, there are other much more powerful forces at work. Because those prices are, well, they can be higher or lower or whatever, Uh the expectations, and here's the key, rising ex- inflation expectations far exceed the contribution to inflation resulting from higher oil prices. In other words, what you think and what all of you think as investors is going to be reflected in price action. Now, uh, Scott Ladner is chief investment officer at Horizon Investments. He said the stimulus is beating the virus, at least as far as the market is concerned and real rates uh, being near negative is just historically a very strong tailwind for asset prices. He goes on to say that can get ignored day to day, especially when people become concerned and inflation is going to rear its head. But at the end of the day, he says inflation is just coming back to normal. I think he's making a good point there because, you know, for so long, people didn't pay any attention to it at all. I mean, it's just inflation. We don't have that. Oh, yes, we do. And But stocks and interest rates do have a history of rising together. Happens all the time. Stocks have risen 13 of the last 15 rising rate environments. And the tech stocks, too. And high multiple tech stocks, too. If, and yeah, it's still if, we were to see some inflation, that would be a good thing for these borrowers and a bad thing for lenders. Because inflation's your friend if you're in debt. Everyone that refinanced or took out a 3% fixed-rate mortgage in the past year should hope for a little inflation in the coming years because it means that the money you're paying back in the future isn't worth as much. Inflation is a good thing for fixed-debt repayments from the perspective of the borrower. Now, Gary Schlossberg from Wells Fargo Investment Institute, I didn't know they had one of those, but apparently they do, he said... The faster-than-expected acceleration of U.S. economic growth appears to be lifting inflation and longer-term rates. The pace of these increases has been a recent concern to investors. But, he adds, a recovery in interest rates and inflation is a typical occurrence early in a recovery. Faster this time, in our opinion, because of the unusually strong economic growth rebound. And finally, Ms. Yellen, she of the U.S. Treasury Secretary, said last week that higher long-term Treasury debt yields were simply a sign that market participants were anticipating a stronger recovery, not of increased inflation concerns. I don't see, She said, I don't see that the markets are expecting inflation to rise above the 2% inflation objective that the Fed has had as an average inflation rate for the longer term. And I guess I should address this uh, rescue plan. Folks have been asking you about it. Um, It appears that it's largely a wealth transfer from the well-managed prosperous red states to the many incompetently managed blue states. Only 9% of the legislation's $1.9 trillion is going to to be mitigating the virus. About 12% goes to the individuals in form of the uh, much-anticipated stimulus checks and unemployment payments. However... The rest, in other words, about 80%, will go to blue state bailouts, funding for school systems that remain closed, kickbacks to unions, new subsidies for Obamacare, and exorbitant financing for innumerable pet progressive projects. Now, Larry Summers, who has served in two previous Democratic administrations, uh, he's an economist, He wrote uh, an op-ed in the Washington Post. He trashed the current administration's plan as being too stimulative and too inflationary. He also implied that the plan included overly generous unemployment benefits that would discourage the unemployed from taking jobs. In fact, there is mounting evidence that the pandemic-related unemployment benefits provided last year have been doing just that. There actually seem to be a lot of job openings, but fewer people willing to take them. That would explain why wages have been rising at a faster pace in recent months. Matthew Klein, writing in Barron's, reports that Americans saved $1.8 trillion more than they would have if we weren't in jail last year, and that savings cut could add to a spending boom. The CARES Act uh, injected $2 trillion into the economy. The... Uh, I know you remember all these names well. The omnibus appropriations bill added $1.4 trillion, And then this last thing adds $1.9 trillion on top of the $3.4 trillion. Cheapers. Now, in 2008, the stimulus represented 5.5% of GDP. Today, all of this that we just described is about 9% of GDP. And another obvious difference is, of course, the market's at a new all-time high, and so are housing prices. There's plenty of stimulus left in the pipeline from last year's pandemic rescue programs. More rounds of government stimulus programs this year could cause a boom that overheats the post-pandemic economy, which could result in higher inflation. So, you know, stay tuned. We don't know. I don't know. uh, But that's an awful lot of money coming down the pike, and uh, we'll just have to see how it gets spent. The OECD, the Organization of Economic uh, Development, uh, says a turbocharged U.S. recovery will help power a faster-than-expected global upswing, they say. They raised their world growth forecast for this year to 5.6% from 4.2%. That's pretty big. And more than doubled its outlook for the U.S. to 6.5%. You know, one thing we know for sure is that an expansion of new highs isn't a bearish characteristic. In other words, it's not a problem for that more stocks are making new highs. It would be a concern if fewer were. And, you know, there appears, too, to be a distinct correlation between where interest rates start and your returns in that investment over the next 10 years. So using today's numbers, longer-term treasuries, <coughs> excuse me, might return only an average of 0 to 2% a year over the next decade. In other words, uh, as we were just speaking uh, earlier, uh, the traditional forty percent bond and the sixty forty portfolio is likely to be acting more like an anchor for you than a sale. You know, it, it because bonds, well, they have this safe haven reputation. People, the consensus is that they're they're totally a safe investment, and you can't go wrong. Well, sometimes. Uh, it's also easy for most people to forget that bonds like stocks are volatile. They do wiggle plenty and are prone to sharp sentiment driven pullbacks. And we think that's what bonds are experiencing today rather than what may be a longer lasting move. But here here here's just for food for thought. The three excuse me, the top three bond mutual funds by return last year were all heavily invested in US Treasuries. And they gained roughly twenty five percent, including the total return, so price plus interest payments, and that's according to Morningstar. What they say now is that the three funds have slid near to the bottom of the ratings, with losses as high as fifteen percent so far this year. Whoa. Well, here's another point. Inflation's like kryptonite for bonds. You know, on one hand, it eats away at the capital bonds as the rising rates attempt to keep up with price pressures and price increases push down to current returns. And on the other hand, future payments you will get from bonds will be worth less in a real sense. That is, the income amounts will be the same, but what they buy won't be. So, uh, oh, Wharton School Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. He's a pistol. He, he wrote a book, Stocks for the Long Term. If you want to read that, it's I think and it's, uh, I don't know, 8th or ninth printing. Uh, he does a pretty good job of just laying out the, again, long-term uh, reasons for owning shares. Um, he said, I've been extremely bullish here for nine months. The stock market still has a way to go up. He warns the challenges associated with higher interest rates and optimism surrounding economic reopenings are going to continue to weigh on the growth trades. He says, I don't think they're going to do badly. We're not going to have a crash like we did 20 years ago at all, but I think the outperformers are going to be basically non-tech over the next 6 to 12 months. He adds that the so-called value stocks are going to be sought out for their yields because I think interest rates are still going to be headed much higher here on the 30-year bond, and I don't think we're done with this rise in long-term rates. He says that the uh, Dow will hit 35,000 this year, which would be a 10% rise. That ain't bad. We'll take that. And he said, and this is interesting, this is going to be the hottest economy we're going to see in a long time. I think that's probably going to prove true. And Brian Westbury, who is the chief economist at First Trust Portfolios, he says he's very bullish on both the market and the economy. They're looking for 4,200 on the S&P, unemployment at about 5%, and U.S. GDP growth of 6%. Now, economists that, are, that were surveyed by the Wall Street Journal um, recently boosted their average forecast for economic growth this year to 5.95%. That's year over year and he's looking for uh, drivers are at overall economic growth a 25% increase in the M2 money supply and multiple stimulus programs and of course the risk is more government lockdowns whether continued or new and UBS has turned more bullish on stocks for the year ahead they say incoming stimulus and pent-up consumer spending are the key they hike their year-end S&P target to 4250 uh from 4100 uh, which and they say that's about a nine percent gain. And for reference, uh, the S and P is at thirty-nine thirty. So, you know, the stock market. And here's a challenge I think that's real. The stock market is currently populated by somewhere between ten and million <laughs> jeepers, ten and twenty million traders, and even more investors who have never operated in an environment in which they weren't immediately rewarded with gains. For just about 12 years, almost anything they bought in any stock at any time has worked. Well, <clears throat> that game's over, and a new one has begun, and it's way harder. There's a few veteran advisors that won't be particularly fazed by this. Uh, newer advisors and most investors are already feeling kind of disoriented, Some will adjust quickly, most will just need more time. The increasing disconnect between what actually matters to a typical investor in the real world markets and what is being discussed on social media, well, that reminds me of how the media consistently overly focuses on things that are unlikely to affect you personally. Sophocles, you remember Sophocles, he said what people believe prevails over the truth. I think that ought to be a, uh, how would I say, a, a, a banner for social media. But when it comes to personal finance, what matters isn't beating some index. What matters is meeting your goals. They're not the same thing. An index is just a broad measure of how a particular segment of the market is doing. Think about it as the average. Many others in the investment advice field, for some strange reason, seem to think that their entire purpose in life is to convince you that the best thing you could ever do is to hire someone to help you beat an index. Here's the key question. Do you need or want the volatility of an index to meet your personal goals? Most people do not. Stop worrying about beating the indexes. Focus instead on meeting your goals with, by your values, what's important to you. You know, you can have inflation without having hyperinflation. Prices can rise without the dollar becoming worthless or the markets going into the proverbial crater. And as far as your portfolio concerns, you have to put yourself in a position to survive a wide range of outcomes. Going back to our comments earlier about asset allocation and diversification. This isn't just good advice for today. It's always true. If we learned Eddie's Ring from last year, it's to keep an open mind. Even if you know what's going to happen, and I'd like to know who you are because we need to talk, let's be clear, none of us do. We still might get the trade completely backwards. So, focus on what you can control. Why are you investing? How much risk can you take? What plan do you have if stocks do fall? What will you do if they don't? When do you plan to retire? How many things... you? You know, all of that has to be factored into your investing, not just some silly index. Now, pre-virus, the economy, U.S. economy, had met all the conditions that the Fed and Mr. Powell were looking for now. So it should make it apparent that 0% interest rates and a massive expansion in both government spending and Fed bond buying are not the answer. The Fed can't fix a virus. Stocks go up until they don't. Write that down. And only once in a while is there a reason that we can be spotted ahead of time, in real time, to explain why. So diversification means always having to say you're sorry about something in your portfolio. But spreading your bets among different parts of the market takes away the extremes. And while those extremes could give you amazing gains, as we've seen in the tech shares over the past 10 years... They can also include amazing losses, and since we don't know how it's going to work out ahead of time, you know, you might want to just get an extra brace for your neck brace when you're investing in those kinds of guys. Spreading your money across a wide range of investments, asset classes, and geographies is the ultimate form of saying, I have no idea what's going to happen in the future, but I am not going to play you bet your bucks on one segment of it. Investors don't need a catalyst to change how they feel. The change in the powerful in, in the narrative of the day is probably the most powerful catalyst of all. So that looks like we do it. We'll be back next Saturday at 9 to talk with you about the markets and the economy. Hopefully the Zags get a good call uh, tomorrow in Selection Sunday, and then they'll be off to the races. So thank you very much for listening. I do appreciate it. I am Mike Mayle. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 1 Living Group. Opinions, forecasts, and case studies are for illustrative purposes only and may only be relevant at the time of recording. Certain sectors in the market, such as international and emerging markets, certain fixed income, including high-yield bonds, precious metals, mid- and small company securities, have greater risks that are generally outlined in their prospectus, contract, or offering document. Any guarantees or protections offered through insurance products are subject to the claims-paying ability of the issuing insurance company. Diversification, asset allocation are no guarantees or protections against loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, and there is always risk associated with investment.